Snowpocalypse 2021 is way in the rearview mirror, and the mic drop is back. We have a great show for you today. Kevin Sullivan here. Abner Haynes joins us to talk about how he and teammate Leon King became the first black student athletes to play college football in the state of Texas. They suited up for the North Texas Mean Green back in 1956. You're not going to want to miss what Abner has to say. Joining that conversation will also be Cowboys star Jalen Smith. We're going to ask Jalen what the story of civil rights pioneers like Abner Haynes mean to him and how perhaps Abner and others gave Jalen and his teammates the courage and the platform to bring about meaningful change today. Then, if you're a young student looking to break into the sports media racket, you are not going to want to miss this. Kurt Menefee, host of the NFL on Fox, is here. Kurt was in Dallas many years ago. Some will remember him as an anchor for Channel 11. You may not remember, he was an original midday host on The Ticket. And he's done a few things since, including write a book, and he's now going to graduate school at Northwestern. He's an amazing guy with a, who's, who's had a great journey that I think uh, young people can really learn from. And finally, David Moore, the Cowboys beat reporter of the Dallas Morning News, will join us for our What Are You Downloading segment. So let's drop the needle and let's go. Drop Podcast. Sully here. I'm joined by my co-host Monica Paul, the Executive Director of the Dallas Sports Commission, along with our next level intern Marcus Carr. But first, coming in hot today is our showrunner Tony Fay, who has something he wants to talk about. Sully, Monica, what do we love more than a good sports anniversary? You know me, I love a good sports anniversary, and we had a whopper just a few weeks ago. Look, we believe I think all three of us, that Dallas is the best sports city in all of America, right? Without a doubt. That's correct. Firmly believe that. We are the only city in the world that's hosted a men's Final Four, a women's Final Four, a CFP National Championship game, a Super Bowl, a World Series, a World Cup. That big event heritage started 35 years ago this month in February in 1986 when Reunion Arena played host to the 1986 NBA All-Star Game. It was an incredible event. I can tell you it was one of the highlights of my young adult life to be out there and seeing this incredible uh, array of talent from that era. And it really set us on the course. It was the first big sporting event that the city went out and bid for and got. And it really set us on the course where we were today. Just to remind everybody what we're talking about in 1986 and the type of talent that was at this All-Star game. I mean, it was generational. And, and, you know, I know, Marcus, you were born, I think, in what, 2010, right? 98. 98. Okay, I knew it was somewhere right around there. So so hopefully you know these names. But, but, I mean, just listen to the players that were part of this game. Larry Bird, ever heard of him? Magic Johnson, ever heard of him? Julius Irving, a.k.a. Dr. J, ever heard of him? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Isaiah Thomas, Dominic Wilkins, Moses Malone, Akeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler, James Worthy, our very own Maverick, Rolando Blackman, ever heard of these people? And these were the biggest names in the sports at at that time. 
And uh, it was such a snapshot of NBA basketball back then. You know, we think of the mid-'80s being the Celtics and Lakers. Well, the West team featured three Lakers starters. You had James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic. Pat Riley was the coach. On the East squad, you had Bird, McHale, Parrish, Casey Jones was the coach. And, and by the way, Patrick Ewing and a little guy you may have heard of called Michael Jordan were also selected as part of the all-star teams. They were both hurt, but they were in the house for that that weekend. It was an incredible weekend. I was a fan. I did not start my Maverick career for another year. Sully, you were right in the middle of this, pulling all this together. What do you remember about this all-star game? Well, I remember all credit to Norm Sanju and the late, great Don Carter for working the system to get the game in the first place. And it was a privilege. We worked on it for two years, took it very seriously, went to uh, the Denver All-Star game two years prior in, in 1984 to do our homework. It was a phenomenal thing to be a part of. And the other thing I remember, you, know, you rattled off those names. I went into PR because they promised me there'd be no math. But if by my <laughs> count, 19 of the 24 players ended up in the Hall of Fame. Both coaches ended up in the Hall of Fame. And that doesn't count Michael Jordan, who, who as you noted, didn't play because of a broken foot. And I, I'll never forget Magic Johnson saying in the post game, uh, you know, it was a wild game. The East came back late and won 139-132. It was back and forth the whole way. Uh, Magic said after the game that the first 10 minutes were, quote, the best I've ever been in pro ball ever. You know, normally you think of an all-star game as, you know, the players kind of, you know, they don't go full tilt. That was not the case here. Then Magic told the Dallas Warning News, I'm going to watch the first quarter of that game until the tape breaks. Now, Marcus doesn't remember. He didn't grow up in a world of VHS tapes, but we all did. And that meant a lot when, when he said he was going to watch it till the till the tape breaks. And we haven't even gotten into Larry Bird winning the three-point contest and Spud Webb winning the dunk contest. Marcus right now is is desperately Googling Magic Johnson's name, trying to figure out who we're talking about. (laughs) Come uh, on, Tony, give me a little bit of credit there. (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned the All-Star Saturday stuff, Sully. That That was as incredible as what happened on Sunday. It was took place on Saturday. The dunk competition was between... Uh, it, it came down between uh, Spub Webb, our very own Spub Webb, Webb from Wilmer Hutchins High School, who was five foot seven, against his teammate at the time with the Hawks, Dominique Wilkins. It was an incredible dunk contest. I can tell you for all of those out there that are vertically challenged, like myself, um, to see a five foot seven guy win the dunk contest was incredible. When I was a kid, all I wanted to do was dunk a basketball. And I remember seeing a story on TV of Daryl Griffith, uh, Dr. Duncanstein, and how he learned to dunk. He had had a hoop in his backyard that was uh, attached to a brick wall, and he would go and vault off the brick wall and dunk the ball. So I thought this was a great way to learn how to dunk. So I would go to my backyard, and we had a hoop above the garage, garage door, the wooden garage door, and I would go try to vault off of it a couple times. You know, it took me a few times to, to get the hang of it, but I got to where I could dunk the ball by vaulting off the garage door. The problem was the garage door was made of wood. And about the 10th time I did it, my leg went right through the wooden garage door. And Sully, you know Tom Fay, my father, 
Yes. You can probably Thanks. guess how Tom Faye, you know, you know, took to that. But um, yeah, I'm going to guess he was not happy. He was not happy. It was it was not a good day for young Tony Faye. But <laughs> it was. Uh, but you know, everybody wants to dunk, right? And so now we see five foot seven Spud Webb from our, our very own Dallas out there outdueling the human highlight film Dominic Wilkins. It was incredible. Tony, I have to ask. Do we have any VHS of this uh, dunking experiment that you did? And it kind of explains some things now. Well, no, but uh, if you get a wooden garage door and a hoop, I am willing to try it. Okay. Okay. Um, Where was YouTube, Monica? I know, right? I mean, my gosh, the technology we have now, (laughs) this would be golden. So the dunk competition. The other thing that, that, uh, you know, the NBA runs the all-star game, not the, not the Mavericks. We were obviously heavily involved and they wanted to look to make all the Texas touches. And for a party at the Hyatt Regency hotel across from reunion, they actually had a longhorn steer as a photo op station in the, in the lobby. And a lot of local celebrities were cajoled into, you know, getting on top, including Don and Linda Carter, by the way, but the ultimate was when Red Auerbach, the, general manager of the Boston Celtics was photographed on top of this Longhorn steer in the, in the Hyatt lobby. And this was right before Willie Nelson played at the convention center, uh, did an all-star concert wearing an, a Western conference uh, Jersey. And uh, it was, just, it was just an amazing, uh, really cool thing to be, to be a part of. And it, it's a great, it's a, it's an anniversary worth uh, celebrating. And I want to add to Sully that, you know, we talked about all-star Saturday and what an incredible event the dunk contest was. Guess what? We invented the three-point contest that weekend. The NBA had not had the three-point contest before then. Sully, you might talk about Greg Jamison at the Mavericks and the idea he had. I was there, and I can talk about it from a fan's perspective that night, but go ahead and, and, and you know. Yeah, it was, uh, well, let's go back to January of 1985, and the Mavericks are playing the Philadelphia 76ers, who had a uh, uh, player named Leon Wood, who incidentally is now an NBA referee, interestingly, but Leon Wood was on the Sixers and he was a, a prolific uh, outside shooter and got drew the attention of the fans, including young Tony Faye that night with a putting on a display of kind of shooting around the world, getting increasingly uh, farther behind the three point line and just kept knocking down shot after shot after shot. Fans started to notice and Greg Jamison and then the Mavericks director of marketing uh, noticed this and saw the attention it was getting. And in the staff meeting right after that uh, said, why don't we approach the NBA about a long distance shootout to amp up all-star Saturday night. We wanted something new. We wanted to add something, you know, later they added horse and different things, but this was really the, 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 the a big upgrade and a big addition to the, to the slam dunk contest. And it really happened the, the, the year before with Greg Jamison watching Leon Wood knock down a bunch of three-pointers in warm-ups. I, I was there that night. I was one of 200 people in the arena when it happened. You know, it was it was right after the doors opened. It was it was really what Steph Curry does now, right, and put, putting on a three-point clinic beforehand. That just didn't happen back then. Sully, you talked about him being a prolific three-point or prolific outside shooter. That probably meant he made – eight three-pointers for the season back then. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, so, you know, Leon Wood had been a pretty good player. He was on the 84 uh, uh, Olympic team. He was a first-round pick, a high first-round pick. And, um, you know, 
I was there. It was amazing. The crowd kind of gathered as he hit more and more of these shots, and it was thrilling, and it was a brilliant idea. And once again, you know, Monica, here's Dallas being innovative with a major event, not just settling on, you know, what other cities have done, but putting its own stamp on it in a way in which, uh, you know, it carries on to this day. Yeah, Tony, I think that's something that we uh, ensure that we do every time we bid on an event. Uh, I know since even 2010 for the NBA All-Star Game to Super Bowl to college football playoff um, with our bid and then the execution, it's always how can we take it to the next level and uh, what is something that's going to be different and put those other host cities on notice of, okay, here's the bar. We've just raised it for sure. So I'm, I know uh, we're talking about 1986, but I think it was an honor too for for the NBA All-Star Game to come back in 2010. And uh, it's very inspiring to me uh, to see the differences that the NBA has kind of added uh, to those events uh, year after year and how they're able to to grow from jam sessions to fan fest. Uh, um, you know, we had the opportunity to host at AT&T Stadium, which normally uh, NBA All-Star Game and All-Star Weekend is hosted in, in an arena and really were able to expand that footprint. In fact, uh, record-breaking attendance at over 108,000. Uh, and and it, interestingly enough, it was a four-to-one ratio of people coming into town that uh, um, you, know, you know didn't have tickets. So a lot of people coming to experience the city. Uh, and one of the things that I think really the NBA sometimes doesn't get a lot of credit for or isn't necessarily the highlight that people talk about is their, their CARES program and what they do here within the community. So really building in... Uh, you know, Boys and Girls Club, NBA Fit, wheelchair basketball, a lot of different things that uh, are really beneficial here for the city. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that we see it time and time again with these big events. They come to cities because of you have world-class, cutting-edge venues too, right? And certainly that was the case in 1986. In 1986, Reunion Arena was looked at as one of the very best venues in all of America. We had hosted the Republican National Convention at Reunion Arena in 84. I, I, I know that this, you know, will blow the minds of people like of, of Marcus's age, but Phil Collins did his No Jacket Required video from Reunion Arena. It was a big selling video. I, I, I'm sure, Marcus, you have watched this many, many times. I'm, I'm sure you groove to Susudio, you know, every day when you're driving home. Um, but it's it, on the playlist. I, I know it is. But, but, you know, so, you know, you had a big convention here, a, a big major pop star at that, at that time had um, chosen Reunion Arena as a backdrop for their, for their show. We had the All-Star Game in 86. A month later, we hosted the Men's Final Four for the first time at Reunion Arena. And so having that top flight venue really helped Dallas kind of launch itself. And then it's continued because of AT&T Stadium, because of American Airlines Center, because of these fantastic, you know, venues that we have now. Well, Tone, thanks for that walk down memory lane and appreciate you joining us. Monica, you know, every week we try to identify a mic drop moment of the week. We got a bunch of them, including some Luca magic that was pretty incredible this week. But let's talk about uh, there's a bill in Austin, the state legislature is meeting. There's a bill in Austin that would allow uh, sports gaming uh, in Texas. Talk about talk about that and what that would mean for our our local franchises. Yeah, silly. Uh, well, I think we all know that uh, gambling and, and sports betting is happening. Uh, you know, there's apps for that these days. 
um, this is a, a interesting opportunity. You know, this could mean billions and billions of dollars for, uh, here in Texas. Uh, it's got a lot of traction from the Mavs, the Stars, the Rangers, actually other professional teams here within the within Texas. Um, interesting time of year, or, or what our country has gone through in Texas due to loss of jobs. So people are seeing that that. Uh, casinos and sports betting has that opportunity to create additional jobs, additional revenue. We definitely have the real estate in the land here uh, in the Dallas area. I think, you know, casinos out of out of uh, Las Vegas are targeting, you know, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, but Dallas would probably be where, where that starts. And then you also have right across our border, uh, you know, two casinos that heavily invest in sponsorships to draw those Texans uh, across to Oklahoma to... to um, spend some money and, and, and gamble. So two bills out there that, that possibly permit, one of them would permit the 13 Texas professional teams to actually host their own sports book, get, get their own uh, license. Uh, there's only four other jurisdictions in the country that uh, actually do this, or Texas would be one of four if this would pass. Heavily opposed by our lieutenant governor, so it's going to be interesting to, to see where this goes here over the next few months. It seems inevitable. Uh, it's happening in a lot of places around the country. You know, the uh, Capital One uh, Arena in Washington, the home of the Capitals and the Wizards, has a sports book in the lobby. It's happening in other places too. Uh, and in and, and the no fans in, in venues this past year has has slow, has slowed slowed it down in terms of the public being aware that this is happening. But the leagues are all behind it, and it, it's coming. So. Stay tuned, you know, here at the mic drop, we are going to keep an eye on this with our focus on sports business and sports marketing trends and everything really around sports and, and, and pop culture that affects sports. So stay tuned for more on that. Time for a quick word from our sponsors and then back to speak with our first guest, Kurt Menefee of Fox Sports. Hi, friends. Rachel Scoggins here. Tired of nights in binge watching your significant other's favorite streaming show while waiting for the delivery service to bring you lukewarm food? How about doing something you both will enjoy that includes a hot dog and an ice cold brew at the same time? Hockey is back. That's right, your Dallas Stars. Remember them? They won the Western Conference last year and are bringing the heat to the AAC ice as they try to bring the Stanley Cup back to Dallas. And the best part? Fans are welcome. That's right. So visit DallasStars.com today for all the best ticket deals and schedule information. Now back to Sully and Monica. Thanks, Rachel. What a thrill it is to be joined by Kurt Menefee, the Fox, NFL on Fox host, who has one of the greatest jobs on earth. And I know that Kurt hears that all the time. What a journey he has had from his times. When we first got to know Kurt, he was the sports director at Channel 11 here in Dallas and would soon thereafter become a, uh, one of the original uh, ticket uh, hosts back in, back in the day. Uh, so, Kurt, thanks for joining Monica and, and me today. It's a real, real thrill to, to have you on the mic drop. It's my pleasure. Good to see you as always. Um, and I think you just reminded me how old I am. That's what starts happening. You know, you, you reach this point in your career and it's like, oh, you know, he's revered. He's done this. He's done that. And you're like, wow, I've done a lot of things because I've been around a long time. <laughs> but as you said, right now I'm in the gig that, that to me is, is the best job ever. Absolutely. No question. Well, Kurt, um, I'm actually a professor, too, in addition to my role at the, at the Sports Commission. I teach contemporary issues in sport management, and it's an undergraduate class, and uh, one of their first assignments is always for them to tell me what they want to be when they grow up. If they're, Some of them <laughs> want to be in the sports industry, some of them don't, but I, I always get the, I want to be the 
GM of an NBA team. I want to be a, a, a commissioner or an athletic director. A lot of sports agents up and coming out there. But I also get sports broadcaster as well. It's very high up on the list. So, And I see you started out as an intern uh, at a mm-hmm. local station near your alma mater. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to get some insight to, to some of these up and coming that may want to interview for your job one day. Um, how early on did you know you wanted to be in sports broadcasting and how did you go about getting that internship and getting your foot in the door? Well, tell them don't interview for my job until at least I decide to retire. Don't push <laughs> me out the door just yet. So <laughs> I, I think the one lesson I, I often talk to, to students um, and I say, be willing to do anything. I, I think that's the first lesson that I learned. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Atlanta, went to high school there, played, you know, sports, but, you know, I wasn't going to be a professional athlete or anything. Um, and I knew I wanted to be involved in sports some way, you know, and, and as a 16, 17 year old, first of all, you're not sure of all the jobs that exist. But secondly, you're not sure what that even means, but I knew I wanted to be around sports. So when I went to college, I went to Coe College, a little division three school, um, currently 1600 students in the middle of Iowa. Uh, and I was a history major um, because I, I felt that this that ability to write, the skill to, to have you know, critical thinking, those kind of things are, are transferable no matter what you do in life. Uh, and history interested me. But while there, I, I also interned at CNN, which was based in Atlanta, the summer after my freshman year. And when I went there, it was all I did was we call it logging games. And when you're in sports television and you're starting out, I would literally watch, you know, the basketball game that was going on that night or the baseball game and just write down key moments when a, a hit happened or when a run happened or whatever, so that later on an editor would take it and then they would edit down the highlights that you see on TV at night. And so that's why I got started. But by being there, I also, we were done at 11 o'clock at night, Eastern time. And all the other interns would, you know, go out or go home or whatever. I stayed there and I hung around the editors and I, I learned how to edit videotape you know which we used back then and um an opening came up after i was there for a couple of weeks the one intern who was paid and it was five dollars for every three hours you work so that's how little we got paid uh that one intern got paid but he had to leave because he, he needed a job you know to make money for school uh, but that job required someone who knew how to edit and because i had stayed there on my own hung around the editors that kind of thing i was like well i know how to edit and the editors vouched for me so i wanted becoming the editor the intern who edited it. Now my shift changed. I wound up working from three in the morning until noon. So I wound up working overnight instead, but it gave me skills. It gave me experience that when I went back to Cedar Rapids that fall as a sophomore, I was able to call up every local television station and say, Hey, I interned at CNN. I know how to edit. Is there anything you, you know, that I can do for you? And one thing led to another, led to another, but I mean, I started out, you know, like I say, volunteering there basically. Um, then when I interned in Cedar Rapids, I just pulled cable for a guy. I carried equipment. And after a while, he said, well, what do you want to do in this business? And I'm like, I don't know. I think I want to be a producer. So he talked to me about producing and brought me in basically whenever I wanted to come in, took me under his wing, John Campbell. I'm still in touch with him to this day. He's retired now, but, but kind of taught me the business. And then after a while, I'd say six months or so, because it was in April of, of that year, um, he said, why don't you put your voice down on tape? You've got a nice voice. Just see what it's like. He's not going on air or whatever. Just do it for practice. So I would do that overnight uh, after the shows were done. Unbeknownst to me, he eventually took it to the news director who was in charge. And he uh, said, well, why don't we have him start reporting on high school sports or, or my college, co-college, small college sports. 
not the University of Iowa, and that's how the path got started on the air. So I guess the long-winded story there really is by volunteering and doing anything and everything and not worrying about the end result, just trying to be the best you can be to get your foot in the door and show people that you can do that. You wind up getting a lot of opportunities that maybe you hadn't even thought of. Because I honestly hadn't even thought about being on the air at that point in my life. Never did. Thought I wanted to be behind the scenes. Kurt, I agree. I, I think that's one of the hardest things to get across to students uh, these days. And those that are even just starting out their career is it takes a lot of work and uh, you have to be able to really agree to do just about anything in order to continue to progress up and get yeah. your foot in the door. So, And if you really want to do it, I think, first of all, I, I'm a believer, you know, if you want to do it or if you think you want to do it, there's a, there's a total difference. You think you want to do it because it's cool. Most things are going to work out for you because, you know, the cream rises to the top, all that stuff. But most jobs that are, you have to be a success at, you know, with you being a professor or Kevin, even going back to his PR days, I'm sure you did a lot of jobs at, and you, when you started out, but you didn't make any money. You, you know, you're living in the smallest apartment. You're eating, you know, the, the three packs of noodles for a dollar. You know, that's yep. your dinner for that night. But you're committed to what you want to do because you love it. You know, it's in your heart and you can live that way knowing that, OK, I'm happy doing what I want to do. And, and this is my quote unquote dream. Not maybe necessarily a living situation, but the job aspect of it. If you don't have that in your heart, you're not going to succeed at it because you, it, it's it's a tough road to success no matter what you know profession you choose. Yeah. So you mentioned a, f a few people who were influential in, in, mm -hmm. in your career. Uh, we all know in the sports industry, it's kind of a, a small network uh, and mm -hmm. it's sometimes who you know uh, to be able to get into certain positions. So who was the most in influential or your mentor along the way? Well, I, I think if you look back, look, my foot would not have been in the door had it not been for a, a man named Fred Hickman who worked at CNN, who had gone to co-college. So when I was in high school and I was looking at going to it, and again, it's a small school in Iowa. I knew nothing about it. I didn't visit the campus before I went. But he worked at CNN, which did sports at the time, and was on the air. And I just, you know, the 17-year-old kid picked up the phone and called uh, to ask him about co-college. And he called me back and we struck up a relationship. And so that was my foot in the door to get that internship the summer after my freshman year. Probably the most influential person in my career as far as what I, you know, because had he not done that, it would not have set everything else up. I mean, the door is open. But you know, I mentioned John Campbell earlier. You know, uh, the guy was a sports director at a local station in Cedar Rapids and, you know, took me under his wing and, and taught me how to write. And, and, you know, I had learned how to edit, but taught me the, the real skill of being able to do it rather than just cutting and pasting. Um, but was the guy who said, hey, put your voice down on tape. Why don't you try that? Because I didn't think I wanted to be on the air. And then he took to the news director and he really mentored me during the last two years that I was in college. You know, because I've never taken a journalism class in my life. I've never taken a speech class. None of that stuff. So he was a guy who really took me under his wing. And that's why I tell you, to this day, even though he's retired, I, I'm, I'm still in touch with him. So I think those people, without those people, and they're people that, you know, majority of people have never heard of in their life, you know, I would not be where I am. From a national standpoint, you know, you look at, at uh, David Hill, who was the CEO of Fox Sports when I started, who had followed me when I was working locally in New York, and eventually got me on air at Fox doing sideline reporting for baseball and, and football, and then eventually put me in the chair here uh, on the NFL on Fox. So, I mean, from a national standpoint, without him, there is no, you know, me. But really, it goes all the way back to the beginning, the people that opened the doors for you and allowed you the opportunity and maybe showed you some things you didn't even see in yourself 
that are, you call them unsung heroes, but I'll always sing their praises. Yep, I, I agree. A lot, a lot of people have helped me uh, along the way as well. So, you know, people see you on TV on Sundays and think it's, you know, just easy. It's just an hour <laughs> or, or a few hours. Yeah. What does the day uh, look like in the life of Kurt Menefee? It's, you know, I know it's more than what we see on TV. There's a yeah. lot of different data technology these days. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Sundays are, are, are well, Sundays are, are actually the fun day because, you know, I mean, look, our day starts. I get in a little after 5 a.m. We're on the West Coast, so you know, our show airs starting at 9 a.m., noon Eastern. So I get a little uh, after 5. We have a meeting starting at 6, but we've met my producer and I and, and um, the other guys in the show at various times throughout the week. But it, it really is to kind of format the show. And our show is 70% ad-libbed, and, and the 30% that's not, for the most part, it's me. You know, hey, making sure I get the right introduction to a feature, or making sure I get the right name for a sponsor in, because of course that's the most important thing, um, you know, and, and the teases to breaks and, and those kinds of things. And, and really that's the, the scripted part. The rest of it's kind of, okay, we're gonna talk about the Packers and the Vikings. Uh, what do you guys think? And then after we kind of get some thoughts, we go, okay, Howie, you, you know, you started off, you're gonna talk about their offense and we go from there. And then it's on me for the rest of the day for the pregame show to one, make sure everybody gets involved and, and, and one of the things I try to do is make sure they get their points across. So part of my day goes throughout the week. You know, I'll talk to Howie on a Thursday or a Wednesday, same with Michael, Jimmy, Terry, just so I am inside their head because sometimes, you know, they get wrapped up in conversation. They forget a point they wanted to make, or it's a good starting point for me to bring up in a conversation with them to say, you know, not that, Hey, you told me on Tuesday, you thought this, but you know, what about this? And it spurs a conversation. So that's just for the hour pregame show. Then we're done, you know, at 10 o'clock, which is one o'clock when the game starts. We do a live halftime show for each and every game. Um, so none of that is taped. And there are people that coordinate. We may have six games going at the same time. It's like, okay, you take a commercial break now so that the guys can do the halftime for this game. And then when that's over, they'll do the halftime for you. And they take a commercial break. So the whole coordination that goes on there. And so the day goes on like that with our early games, our late games, every game, and we finally finish up with a post-game show uh, and wrap our day at 8 o'clock Eastern time uh, at night, 5 p.m. Pacific. So it's a 12-hour day on Sunday. But the groundwork's laid throughout the rest of the week in the conversations that I have with those behind the scenes, with the guys on the set, with other people in the league, because, I mean, we can't talk if we don't talk to people to find that information. So it goes on and on. I try to carve out Mondays as my day uh, to spend with my wife and, you know, pre-COVID, we could go to movies or, or dinner and that kind of thing. Um, but that doesn't often work. I mean, it just, it bleeds into that no matter what. So it, it winds up being a full-time seven day a week job um, during the football season. Then in the off season, I usually travel a lot, but obviously these days that's not possible. And I also started going to grad school last fall, which takes even more of my time and I've doubled up my classes here in the off season. So I wake up in the morning, I read, I write, I go to bed, I read, I write, I do the same thing. There's more work now than there is during football season. You know, Kurt, that's a good, another good lesson for, for Monica's students at SMU and students everywhere that you know, you're a person for all the awards you've won and all you've accomplished professionally, you've done these other things. You wrote a book, you yeah. and I connected over that a few years ago called Losing yeah. Isn't Everything. That was a terrific read. I recommend that. Thank you. Uh, find it on Amazon, hint, hint. Uh, and uh, and now you're now you're going now you're going to grad school studying public policy for crying out loud at Northwestern University. Why why is it important to you 
to do these other things when you have one of the greatest jobs in the world? One, I, I think you never stop learning, or at least I, I would hope to never stop learning. Uh, I, I think that whatever interests you, I mean, those are pursuits you should undertake to try and find as much as you can um, about it as possible. But th these are all things, you know, I, I talk about travel being a big thing. I've traveled in part for the reason that I wrote the book, in part for the reason I'm going to school. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in people and how they live, how they try to live, um, why some are more successful. And I don't mean financially successful, but just at life than others. Um, one of the great things that I've been to, I think 92 countries and you know all seven continents all over the world. But you find that the one thing everybody's got in common is they're trying to do their best to take care of themselves and their family. But there are different ways that it happens in different environments based off of, of the policy of the government, based off the environment that they live in, those kinds of things. So I've always been intrigued by that. Um, and so I think that's the foundation for public policy. But a lot of it really was kind of, look, when I started the college, I told you I was a history major uh, when I went to Coe. The first quarter, first semester, we were on the semester system, um, that I was there, I was a, a political science major. Uh, and then I switched to history just because I like the writing aspect of it. Um, but I've always been interested in politics. And I think really the last year, the events of last summer made me realize I need to do something because I'm blessed and fortunate to have a platform. And people think because you have a platform that you have wisdom, <laughs> you know, those two don't always go together. Um, but I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I know people in the political world, you know, politicians, um, people behind the scenes on staffs. Uh, I know CEOs of corporations. I, I know people that can influence policy within their organization or within in the country or, or the state. And at some point, you've got to do something, at least I felt, besides say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Or why don't we try and get this accomplished? Well, what are the tools that it takes to get those things accomplished? What are the... the, the what's the information that that person needs in order for them to take it to the next step. And so I felt that I needed a bigger background in public policy um, and administration, which is what the program is, but in order to maybe make some suggestions and to try to really make some change in the world, as opposed to just going out and tweeting something or saying something on television or whatever, because that only goes so far. Real change happens because of policy. And I, and I think, and not to get in the whole soapbox here, but I think that we're, in a place where policy is not only forgotten, it's ignored, uh, and it's ignored until there's a problem. You know, the reason that we are having the issues that we have, I mean, obviously it's a pandemic and those kinds of things, but you know, the distribution system of, of the vaccine, that's policy. That's got nothing to do with the politics. People wanna go Republicans, Democrats, whether it's your governor, whether it's the president, whatever. It's the policy that's implemented or attempted to be implemented that affects whether or not you get that vaccine in your arm. How does it get from the pharmaceutical company to, to your doctor or your pharmacy? And people don't think about those kinds of things. And then they are up in arms about why things work or don't work. And I think that if you can do things to try and help the steps along the way, or at least help people interpret it, then I, I, I to me, that's something I should be trying to do. And, and, and the last thing about it is one of the things that, you know, obviously when the election was going on, everybody was, hey, get out and vote, get out and vote. I've always stressed people, we focus so much on a presidential election. Um, and I know you work for a president. <laughs> so, you know, there's nothing against the president at all, but you're more affected by what goes on in your state and local government. And people totally ignore that so often um, because they're either on the big prize because that's what the media covers, but that's not what affects your day-to-day -day life as, as much. 
Yeah, and voter turnout at local in local elections is appallingly yeah. low. And that that is a great point. You know, the other thing I hear as you're talking about this is you have this curiosity, but you also want to help people. You mentioned yeah. Fred Hickman earlier, who's who's an awesome guy who helped you. I think another good thing for for young people listening to this is is your emphasis on people and relationships as a ideas, stories, as opposed to technology. Mm-hmm. And 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 people over over stuff. I mean, I'm sure that has helped you uh, as a broadcaster to have that yes. focus on people. And what what is the role that you know, students ask about increasing their network? Talk a little bit about the role of relationship building and focusing on people. I, I think first of all, it's always been important. And the more we lean on technology, I think the more important it becomes. You know, there's nothing like face to face time, handshakes, or a conversation. You know, look, we live in a world where 20 times a day we text our friends or even people that are business associates. And that's fine because that's how we have to operate. But every now and then you do need to pick up the phone and have a conversation with them, even if it's not about the business that you are in or you want to talk about. I can't tell you the number of stories that have come to me, whether it's local or whether it was you know national, simply because I have a relationship with someone just based off of a friendship. Um, you know, I, I think one of the classic stories, and I think it went a long way towards me getting the full-time gig at, at Fox um, as host of the pregame show, was I had struck up a relationship with the late Bill Walsh, you know, who's the Super Bowl winning coach of the 49ers, the Hall of Famer, that kind of thing. And it was just, one, because he was a good person. Uh, he was retired, not in football or anything. Um, and one day I had moved out to California, and, and this was when I was in the race to, to be named the pregame show host. And I was out with my wife um, and we were at the Griffith Observatory, I always remember. And my phone rang and it was a different friend. Um, and they're like, what are you up to? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just hanging out with my wife. And they're like, hey, Bill Walsh is gonna call you in 10 minutes, answer your phone. I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, first of all, why wouldn't I? <laughs> Secondly, but anyway, he called to tell me that um, he had been diagnosed with cancer, only had you know four months to live at that time. But he wanted me to be the person he sat down and did the interview with. I did it, you know, Fox, you know, it was a big emotional thing, but it was a, a, journalistically, it was a good get. But that came not because I sought out Bill Walsh to establish a relationship because someday he may have cancer and I can have a story. First of all, it's not a story I want to do. But that came and the trust that he had in me to tell his story the right way was because we had been friends or, or we had communicated. You know, we had a relationship. And that has happened with countless stories or information that you get sometimes it's just because people trust you on background but they trust you because they know you and the reason they know you is because they have conversations or, or they you know feel like they've got a relationship with you and I have people that that you will never know because I never tell you that they told me this information or that I got this information or may sometimes it may be hey just check out this or I'm hearing that but it goes so far it, this whole business and all of life I think is about relationships and that's worked for travel, for everything else. I mean, if you want to extrapolate it into the travel thing, I mean, I was in, in the southern tip of, of Chile one year. <laughs> and I realized, oh, Antarctica is not that far away. But obviously, there's no Southwest Airlines flight that goes you know, to, to Antarctica. And I happened to be in a, a bar. And I use what I call my travel Spanish, which when I travel, I, I'm good at. I never say I'm fluent. But anyway, I'm talking to this guy, and I, we're just talking about Antarctica, and he brings up the fact that, first of all, you have to have an invitation to stay there. Only certain people can go, blah, blah, blah. 
But it turns out his cousin was in, uh, in a, uh, um, an officer in the Chilean Air Force who was based there in Antarctica. So he gave me his cousin's email. I exchanged emails with his cousin. I wasn't able to go that year, but the following year, I got to go and stay on the Chilean Air Force Base in Antarctica for three nights, which was the limit they allowed you. But that only became because I was interested and in, in struck up a conversation with a stranger and started talking about him, just about his life. I can tell you about being in Tonga and being invited to someone's home when you know they cooked a pig in the ground and invited me to sit down and eat with them. But it's because you, you're, you're the curiosity about people and, and finding out who they are and what makes them tick that has led me to the life that, that I've had and a life that I, I am blessed and fortunate and wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Kurt, you're sharing the bill today on the mic drop with Jalen Smith of the Cowboys and, <laughs> and the, the, the great Abner Haynes, yeah. first, black, first black player to play college football in Texas yep. back at North Texas State, as it was known then in 1956. <laughs> So what, what have we learned in the last year about the role that sports can play in ending racism? I know we've got a long way to go, mm -hmm. but would love your thoughts on, on that as we, as we uh, wrap up. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it can end racism because I don't know if that's going to happen in, in the span of humankind, in all honesty, because we are tribal to a certain extent, uh, and it's about overcoming racism. Um, but I, I think the thing that, that sports can do is that as I, I started this whole conversation off with saying that for whatever reason, people believe if you have a platform, you have wisdom. But sports allows a lot of people to have platforms. And if you're wise on the issues, if you have some input that's valid, that's worth saying, use that platform to benefit everybody, not just yourself. And I think we've seen a lot of that happen in the last year or so. Uh, that, that athletes and, and you know, organizations have taken the mantle and said, we can be you know, forebearers in this and, uh, and, and, and allow people to see this is the way the world should be. This is the way we hope the world is because people tend to listen to us a little bit more. And I think that's the big role that sports can have is knowing that you have people that are listening will give them a reason to hear you. And it's a great point about, about getting educated, which is something Jalen Smith has done in terms of learning of all the issues involved with minority yeah. entrepreneurship and then really putting his money where his mouth is and, and taking action. And, and, you know, Kurt, we still consider you a, a, a Dallasite. We had a lot of good years with you here. You and I worked together on some tough <laughs> stories, including Roy Tarpley, uh, that, that sad yes. story. You were always a, a fair person and a, and a good person to work with. Uh, in my NBC Sports days, I got to work with a number of great studio hosts, including Bob Costas, but I've never worked with anybody who had to manage the personalities uh, <laughs> and the unpredictability that you have to with Terry and Jimmy and Howie and that crew uh, that you, that you deal with. And, 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 and just, and I know, I know Dallas played a, a springboard in getting you to New York. And so we're vital springboard, proud yes. of you for, 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 for that. Uh, do you get back much? I mean, how do you see Dallas in the in the in the sports uh, uh, landscape in the country these days? Yeah, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I don't get back to Dallas much, except um, you know, if it involves we're there for a, a cowboy game, um, because I'm pretty much you know locked down into the NFL now, so I don't cover the other sports, certainly not nearly as much as I used to, um, and so I still have friends there that I keep in touch with. It was a major springboard for me. I mean, Dallas got me to New York, which got me to Fox, et cetera, et cetera. It'll always be a special place for me. Certainly, I think um, 
with the exception of the Cowboys, the sports scene's a lot better now than it was when I was there in the <laughs> early nineties and you were with the Mavericks and, you know, you know, winning 11 games and going through Quinn Buckner and, and all that stuff. Uh, the Rangers were struggling too soon. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> It'll always be too soon. Trust me. You know, the Rangers were struggling. They were just moving in the ballpark in Arlington. Uh, you know, I think Bobby Valentine was there at the beginning. Then they had Kevin Kennedy while I was there. Um, the stars were just moving there. So, but anyway, the, the times I think are a lot better on the sports scene for sure uh, than they were back then with the exception of the Cowboys. But I, I, I blame it all. I, I told Jerry this before. I was in Dallas for three years. They won two Super Bowls and then lost the NFC Championship game. I left. I went to New York. The Yankees won four straight World Series. I go, people should hire me in their organization <laughs> if they want to win championships. I'm the lucky charm. Since I've left, yeah, Dallas had that leftover Super Bowl they won with Barry Switzer, but that was just on my fumes. That's all that was. Come back to town, Kurt. It's time for you to move <laughs> back to Dallas. We need some of that love. You got to stop it from snowing there. Now, I'm a Southern California guy. I can't take cold weather. Snow? What snow? I, we don't know what <laughs> hey, you're talking Kurt, about. That was fake news. It's <laughs> okay. fake news. Yeah, that, yeah that, didn't, that, that didn't happen. Never happened. Either. We're with the Dallas Sports Commission. <laughs> Uh, we're going to give the last word to our showrunner, Tony Fay. Hey, Tony. Kurt, how are you doing? So, all right, how are you, buddy? So I'm sitting here watching this, and all I really want to know is, is that a Montreal Expo hoodie that you're wearing right now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. You can see I got dressed up for you guys. <laughs> well, I... Uh, no, it, 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 first of all, it's one of my favorites, but I've always loved that logo. I told you I grew up in, a kid in Atlanta. And you know, look, I was a huge Braves fan, still am. That's still my team. But you know, again, growing up, I was a lot of bad teams. And so I had to have a second team. And I always just loved the Expos logo because I eventually, when I was little, I didn't understand, but I realized that you know, within the M, there was the E and it was also a baseball glove. I was like, there's a hidden message in there. It's just a cool logo. So they became my second team. And then once they disappeared, well, then the love affair probably grew even more. So I, I was an Expos fan, you know, from the uh, way, way, way back days. Let's say it that way. Well, I just wanted to clarify that. I, I've been yes, sitting here. You, you, you've been an incredible interview, but I, I've been fixated on that logo, <laughs> tr trying to see if that's what that was. So I, I've, got, I, and I've got an Expos hat somewhere, too. I should pull it out every now and then, too. No, I love it. Love it. Well, Kurt, thanks for joining us today. Continued success with all the great work that you're doing. We'll see you on Sundays. Good luck in school. That is so impressive at Northwestern. And, and, uh, and thanks again for joining us here on the mic drop. Now over to Rachel for a word from our sponsor. It's Rachel again. Hey guys, did snowpocalypse get you down and ruin your Valentine's Day? Here's a tip. Your relationship doesn't have snow days. You may have forgotten Valentine's Day, but trust me, Valentine's Day hasn't forgotten about you. And even more to the point, she hasn't forgotten that you forgot. So before you make up for your wayward behavior with $50 of Easter peeps stuffed into a handcrafted heart-shaped box you made from construction paper, empty beer boxes, and Gorilla Glue, woof, try giving her something she really wants this year. Give her a big O ring. These handy and stylish key rings have been featured on Oprah, Good Morning America, The Today Show, and The View. They're everywhere. Women love these and they'll love you for gifting them one. Go to oventure.com and order yours today. The O rings, giving women an extra hand. Love is real. Now back to Monica and Sully. Thanks, Rach. Appreciate that. It is such an honor now to be joined by the great Abner Haynes and Cowboys star linebacker Jalen Smith for what we think is an important conversation. Back in 1956 at North Texas State, as it was known then, 
Abner and his teammate, Leon King, became the first black football players in Texas. Abner would go on to greatness as a halfback. That's what they called the position then at North Texas. Uh, and, and was a star, one of the first stars in the American Football League, most notably with the Kansas City Chiefs, who inducted Abner into their Hall of Honor. We know Jalen as one of the Cowboys starting linebackers, but what you may not know is that growing up in Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana, he dreamed of being a business executive. Wasn't sure about his path out, uh, but he did realize his NFL dreams and having done that, he decided to invest his own money in helping make dreams come true for others through his Minority Entrepreneurship Institute. You might say, you know, Abner was a pioneer in 1956, and now Jalen is following in the trail blazed by Abner as a great leader on and off the field. Uh, so welcome both of you to the mic drop. Let's, Abner, let's start with you. Uh, it's such an honor to have you on the show. At, in 1956, uh, at North Texas, you know, you were a product of Dallas Lincoln High School. You went, you went up to Denton. What was that like as to be the first black player uh, in the state of Texas? It, it was an interesting time. Um, I was born in Denton. And a lot of people didn't realize that. And my, my father was a minister, Bishop F.L. Haynes. And we had moved to Dallas. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, that's how I ended up going to Lincoln High School. So uh, I knew people in Denton. Uh, I had to walk to school. It was about 30, 40 miles from the black neighborhood to the college. And uh, there was no buses at the time. So we walked. So you had to have your mind made up that you wanted to do this. And as I thought about uh, this interview and and kind of looked at what I had went through, uh, we 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 became a family. It's a funny thing what happens when uh, a group of humans uh, set the same goal uh, to accomplish something, and all of a sudden. George Herring from Snyder, Texas, and uh, Bill Carrico from Denton uh, uh, became my brothers. And and uh, after class at, at North Texas, we'd meet in the union and uh, fellowship, and and they also were my teammates, and. They they were outstanding. The, the only real problem we faced was when we would leave Denton to go and play somewhere. And that year, 56, we went undefeated. Uh, we were at uh, called a freshman team. And uh, that that I thought that helped us a lot because we, we didn't really uh, – play the varsity until it was scrimmage time but uh, my freshman teammates we were we were like a, a, a family we'd run into problems going somewhere to play and what it would do would open their eyes to what I was going through and uh, we would get closer 
And as I was thinking about this interview, it was interesting to me how uh, the things that came to my mind that I thought of from students who were just students in North Texas who would come and have lunch with me, uh, sit down with me, didn't know me from Adam. Uh, and I, I, I had uh, mixed feelings even sitting down thinking about uh, the stuff that we went through when, when we were on the road, when we were out of Denton. But in Denton, uh, I walked to school every day, and teammates would walk with me, uh, relatives would walk with me, and just, you know, people that, that I knew from growing up there, uh, it, it was quite interesting. I didn't mean to take so long, but uh, it, yeah. it was quite interesting when I look back on it and and thought about what had happened and how people had, had treated us when when they had they saw a black player on the team from North Texas. Even though our practices and this really hit me, uh, we used to see the president of the university he'd be hid in the seats in the bleachers trying to watch and see was I okay were things going right I was going and Otis Mitchell was the head coach he's about 65 and Fred McCain and Mary McCain treated me like I was their son and uh, Ken Bonson uh who was with the 49ers uh, came to North Texas and became uh, the freshman coach, our new coach. And and this guy had spent two years in San Francisco. So uh, I had a tough time, but I had some great experiences too and some, some great fun. And uh, the – the little city of Denton is an amazing place because uh, it, it always treated me like it was my home. And and I really uh, still appreciate that. Listening to you, Abner, I'm struck by the fact that the university would not allow you to live in the dorms or even eat in the dining hall. And yet you were welcomed, it sounds like, by the students and certainly by your teammates. And I don't know if yes. that says something about sports or something about the kind of person you are. What do you What do you make of that? Well, uh, I can just share with you what I made of it at the time. Uh, Vernon Cole, who was from Poly Point, Texas, he's deceased now, but he would slip food out to me, and Dwayne Day would slip food out to me. And Eugene Hacker, who was a, a German descent, uh, would bring me foods uh, outside of the dining hall. I couldn't even go in the dining hall. That was illegal. I certainly, They certainly couldn't give me no food. But my teammates uh, kept bringing me food where uh, I was able to survive the day. And we were able to stick together whatever the laws were, the policies were, your attitude was. Uh, we had a bonding process 
uh, we are teammates, and we consider that very powerful. And uh, in Denton, I I just didn't fear things uh, like probably the normal person who was from somewhere else, because I knew my way around. And I knew about headache. I knew about mistreatment. I knew about sad. They did too. And the coaches, Ken Bonson, Herb Furrow, Fred McCain, they were amazing. They were old men. But, man, the way they protected my back, you you would be shocked to know the things that they went through to make sure I was okay. Let's bring Jalen in. I'm 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 curious, Jalen, what what you're thinking about as you're listening to Abner Tello's stories from 1956. Man, first of all, Abner, it's a pleasure to be on the call with you. It's a blessing. Um, extreme homage just for 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 someone like you who's paid who's paved the way and um and I haven't ex- I haven't experienced exactly what you've experienced firsthand. Um, but there's so much that exists that, that still exists to this day, just from, from yeah. an inequality standpoint and things of that nature. And, and, um, you know, me, a guy that, that, that does a lot of the research and learning about our history. I, um, I, I'm just thankful to hear your story. Um, and it's, it's, it's a blessing to be on the phone. I'm just, I'm, I'm humbled and, and just honored to be able to learn from 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 someone like you for sure. Well, Jalen, let me uh, tell you, it's great to talk to you, and I'll I'll share something else. Um, my grandfather was July Haynes, and he was uh, I did some research on him, and uh-huh. found out that there was a black school in Marshall, Texas. And he was the first individual to register to that school. I then later found out that he was teaching on the Indian reservation in Oklahoma. And that kind of grandfather uh, uh, impressed me that it was a reason that he was doing that. I remember when we used to sit down at the table to eat, uh, we all sit there together. It was, it was 10 of us. And uh, you couldn't eat and, and run or eat in the other breakfast room. And uh, They required that we all sit together and break bread together and share what was going on. And that's the kind of environment that I grew up in. As I stated earlier, my father was a bishop and they were organized as bishops all over the country. And I used to go to the meetings to drive him. And we'd, we'd meet in Waco, Texas. And there would be black ministers there from all over the country. Uh, sharing what they were going through and what they were uh, experiencing. And uh, I guess what I'm saying, 
is my folks uh, really gave us exposure. My my brother next to me, Bishop J. Newell Haynes, he died last year, and but he was a bishop. And he, uh, my family had this thing of uh, when you got a certain age, you were sent to California or Colorado. Uh, you might have heard of Sly Stone. That's my first cousin. Well, uh, Sly wow. and him left Denton and yeah. went. Yeah, came to California and created the the music and so forth. And I was sent to Denver, Colorado, in the fifth grade, and it at an integrated school. And so I I I gotten from that all these years that my folks were not sleep, and they had their eyes wide open and they had a plan for us. My oldest brother, Samuel Haynes, played quarterback at Prairie View. I thought I was going to Prairie View. And then they told wow. me, no, you, yeah, you're going to Denver. And Denver. And I was like, well, man, I'd rather stay around here. And <laughs> we'd, go, we'd go out at North Texas and play uh, touch, just touch ball. We didn't belong out there. We'd go anywhere to play uh, football, have a game, and so forth. And my daddy said at, at the table one day, how would you feel going to, going to North Texas and helping other black kids get in school? The, the, the South doesn't have any black football players. They had uh, Calvin Jones was at Iowa, and they had a couple at Illinois. And I thought, hmm, I don't know. I think about going to Denver. Well, won't y'all go out there and talk to the coach and see what he say? And we went out and talked to the coach, and the guy told me, well, you probably can't make the team. You're too little. But if you want to try, you can. And it changed my well, life. Did that, did, that, did that light a fire in you? It changed my life uh, the, for him to didn't think I, you know, make it tell me you're too little, but if you want to try, you can. And uh, that was Otis Mitchell. And wow. my brother went back excited and told the family and it changed my life. So you know, I believe, I believe, you know, I believe that, that more of these stories, must be shared, um, especially for a guy like me. I'm going on my sixth year, um, you know, with 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 Dallas. And you've been living in Dallas for five years now, and just understanding the scopes of um, the the importance of North Texas and um, you know all the local universities, um, you know the impact that they've had on this entire metroplex. I just yes, think man. it's a. I just think it. it and then the magnitude. So for me, I'm from Indiana. I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and um, grew up. And there's been this. There's always been this stigma of like football is different in Texas. And my first my first day after getting drafted, you know, flying out to Dallas is, and it, it just seeing the, the the development of it and the difference between 
from state to state. It's just it's just an amazing thing. I think more of these stories must be shared uh, to allow anyone, um, any human that that loves the game of football, just to be able to understand the growth that we've had, um, where we started. And, yes. and, and then where it needs to where it needs to continue to go. Um, I think you're I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, so many of the stories uh, are not told, and 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 that's exactly. that's where our kids miss the boat sometimes. And it uh, I Lack know of I look at yes, and and I I I. Uh, uh, talk to my daughters about uh won't you won't you write what you've been experiencing and God, I think humans we take what we experiencing as life and we don't realize that uh if we wrote it down somebody else might be going through it and so I'm constantly telling my sons and my daughters and my grandkids. I got grandkids now, ten-year-old, twelve-year-old, fifteen-year-old, and uh, I'm trying to get them to the mindset of what I think is necessary for them: work hard, do your homework. You know, don't don't skim on yourself, don't cheat on yourself. All of those things, and they just hearing that from Paw Paw. That's what they call me. And, <laughs> but you know, you, you're right. Down the road, you're gonna have grandkids and kids, and you, and who's who's gonna encourage them? Who, who's gonna tell them about what you went through, where they realize, exactly. well, if Paw Paw went through it, I'm going through it. And right. I think you're right. I think you're right. Abner, I read where you said your your father gave you some great advice, which was use your brains, not your anger, when you would be confronted with, with racism. Jalen is certainly using his brains with his Minority Entrepreneurship Institute. Jalen, why don't you tell Abner and our, and our listeners uh, why you've made helping minority entrepreneurs such a priority, $2.5 million of your own money, into a into a really powerful program. Uh, I think think all of this comes together uh, with with what Abner did then and what what you're doing today. Yeah, just um, honestly, my purpose beyond athletics is is to help close the the economic and educational gap that exists in this world today. Um, you think about the wealth gap in this in in in, in America and um. White, white people's net worth is on average is over a hundred thousand um, dollars. And, and, and for blacks in America, our average net worth is $200. Uh, there's a, the, 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 that alone is just lets you know what, that there's something going on. It's a huge scandal. Um, Abner, even, you know, back in your day in the sixties, things of that nature, um, you know, black people, we were, we, we weren't allowed to, to, to do certain things. We weren't allowed to have real home ownership and, and get bank loans and um, the things of that nature. And it's just a, it, everything that exists to this day is a product of our history and it has to be changed. It must be changed. We can achieve 
true equality and freedom with economic equality. Um, well, and, and that's, that's something that I'll, that, yeah. What'd you say? What'd you say? I said that, that's interesting. My, when we moved to Dallas, uh, my dad bought a house on South Boulevard in the Jewish neighborhood. And within six months, all of them was gone and it moved to Holland Park. And it became a black neighborhood. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's still there. What still was that, what was that experience like? What was that experience like? It, it was just... Uh, to seeing, you know, come home after school and and seeing my white neighbors moving. And, and you know, and I'd wonder what, what was going on, what had happened in something. And finally, just listening at the table to the family discussion, they mentioned that uh, the neighborhood was uh, turning black. And uh, and it's still that today in South Dallas. Hey, hey Jalen. So Jalen, this is uh, this is Monica. Um, how, you hosted your um, event, I think, out at uh, the Star in 2020. Is that correct? Yes. Are are you? Do we have plans for that to continue on in in 2021 and and continue to grow here in in North Texas? Yes, we have. Um, so my team um, with the Minority Entrepreneurship Institute, we've opened up two marketplaces uh, in the state of Indi- one in the state of the state of Indiana. Um, and then last year, opening up the Texas marketplace, uh, being able to invest in the black and brown the Latinx community uh, throughout the entire state. Um, that's going to continue year in and year out. Um, uh, with a dollar amount allocated towards um, not only giving financial funding, but helping with mentorship, helping with um, helping entrepreneurs put together their infrastructures and and creating great plans and models, having right people on their team. Uh, This year, we're going to be opening up the, the Florida marketplace and we'll have our showcase this July in Tampa. So, um, this is something definitely want to spread throughout the country, but like I said, I've been here, I've been in Texas for for five years now, and I can, I'm, I, I'll be living there for the rest of my life. So, I'm always got to give back to, to, to the Metroplex for sure. Well, uh, I went to Lincoln High School in what's called uh, South Dallas, which is our neighborhood, of course, and and. Uh, the whole structure that, that you describe, I remember going to school every day and every block it was a fight because somebody that's not in school trying to take my money and it just ain't going to happen. You ain't going to take my money at the age that I was. But we still had to go that away. We still had to walk down Oakland Street all the way to Lincoln and deal with the ignorance of the uneducated, the don't know, the I don't want to go to school. I done dropped out, but I want your money. And that's just a little example of some of the things that the kids that are trying to do something 
are running into. Uh, and I'm glad to hear you say that because it gets you involved in what the kids are going through. Exactly. And therein lies how to address the problem because they they got the problem. They might not say nothing. We you know we didn't go home crying to mom and daddy because we got jumped on. Somebody tried to take our money, but you couldn't walk a block without some dude who done quit school, who, who done gave up uh, trying to benefit on your money because they were broke. And what what I hear you saying is the education of ourselves and how we do in each other, not only black and white, but white on white, black on black, the whole process is functioning and we need to address it and let the public and the kids know we are aware of what they're going through. Abner, I'd like to close by Absolutely. asking each, each you and Jalen, the, the, each of you the same question based on what you just said. What can, what can our, our listeners do, the average person do to, to do their part to, to overcome racism, to increase equity, the things you and Jalen are talking about, what, what's something the average person can do? Well, when I look at my past, uh, I grew because I got exposure trying to achieve something. And if you're a young kid, an education is worthwhile, whatever you got to go through. And I learned so much from the process of trying to be educated and the road that it took me that I didn't know even existed. I'm just trying to go to school, but I run into somebody else's problem. Right. It wasn't necessarily mine. These guys that are trying to take our money were hungry. And I have no objection to them eating, but you're not taking my money to eat on. And so uh, the kids need help, especially the kids whose parents are not working. They quit school. Uh, they thinking about quitting school. Uh, they need, they, you know, I use football as a program after school uh because that's what my family suggested, to pick up more information, more learning. And uh, from football, I started running track, started running the hurdles, started broad jumping, and trying to play basketball, but refusing to do nothing. Uh, and being involved, and I wasn't maybe good at it, but I can try. I can be in practice on time. I I, I can eat right. Uh, I cannot drink alcohol. There's a million things that we need help at. But somebody that we respect or have a regard for needs to be the one that's, that's advising us, not, not the headache problem itself. I hope that makes sense. Refuse to do nothing. 
makes a great deal of sense. So Jalen, you have the last last word. What what do you want to leave our, our listeners with? Um I, I just to, to, to echo what my man saying, um, I just believe information is key and, and you don't know what you don't know. Right. Uh, there was a there was a there was a point in time where you know pe- people of our descent couldn't could, weren't allowed to read. You know what I mean? Right. We're, we're denied that opportunity. Um, so as we continue to advance, it's just understanding that we we have access. We got to find it. Networks and relationships matter. Um, and, and, we used and, to and use the, the church. We used to use the church for that. See, and it was a place where kids automatically went on Sunday. And once you got there, yeah. it was a variety yeah. of things that I used to pick up uh, that my my dad and mom hadn't even mentioned to me. And so uh, exposure uh, has been a great help to me mm-hmm. to be uh, exposed different uh, city. That's one of the thing reasons I thought playing ball would be a good help, cause you get some travel in there, you get some experience, you get to meet somebody who's different, and you might pick up something. And so, uh, even pro ball, you know, the team that was Kansas City was in Dallas at one time, and. What it gave me the opportunity to do, being a local kid, is to talk to the local kids. Well, a lot of teams don't like local players. They want guys from somewhere else. Well, I got a lot of gratification out of playing in Dallas and talking to the kids from my old high school and my college uh, because I was somebody they had heard of. And I, well, powerful I, I think words. we could do, do more of that. Yeah, powerful words from Abner Haynes and Jalen Smith. Great stories. Thank you so much for being with us today on the mic drop and continued best wishes to you both. Jalen, God bless you and God bless the other brother too. Y'all take care of yourself and I'm pulling for you. Much, much love, my brother. Appreciate you, man. Let's go to a Lincoln game, man. High school. Yeah, man, check him out, the purple and the white. All right, brother, be safe. All right, bye-bye. Yep, bye-bye. How, how cool was was that? Uh, man, that was uh, a real privilege to have Abner Haynes and Jalen Smith. Let's hear one more time from Rachel. Well, that's a mic drop, seller. All right, guys, are you looking to get out of the house in a safe way? Maybe have a relaxing weekend at the spa or a fun family staycation for spring break? The Omni Dallas Hotel is right in the heart of downtown within walking distance to some of the area's best restaurants and unique shopping. The Uptown Terrace Infinity Pool is a family-friendly retreat during the day and a great place to watch a romantic sunset over the Dallas skyline at night. Go to omnihotels.com Dallas today for the best offers and spend your free time exploring Dallas. Why? Because big wins happen here. Thanks, Rach. Appreciate that. Also, appreciate David Moore from the Dallas Morning News joining us here on the Mic Drop. David, it's great to see you. Hey, great to be seen. 
So this is the, the point in the show every week where Monica and I ask somebody what they are downloading. And so we thought, you know, one of the things I downloaded recently was the, you know, the Michael Jordan documentary, which you made several appearances in lurking in the background of locker rooms <laughs> at NBA finals and all-star games and everything. So it was fun to see you that way. Uh, lurking but it's is the time... best way to describe it. Yes. Yeah. Lurking. Uh, it's great to see you though. We had a lot of years working together with the Mavericks during, during uh, your, your career when you were an NBA guy. And now of course, covering the Cowboys beat, but uh, oh, David, it's time to open up your laptop, turn over all pertinent cell phone and streaming records, surrender all data and let us in on what bits of sports related pop culture you've been downloading. So, so what is it? Uh, what do you download David? Well, uh, I think one of your previous guests discussed this, but uh, uh, Ted Lasso is something I've certainly enjoyed here uh, recently. Uh, I think it's the the perfect antidote for uh, all of the turmoil that's going on in the world to have a uh, a show with such a uh, a sweet undertone and, and kind of hits on like the the transformational aspect of relationships and. And to me, it's interesting, too, because that and, and Queen's Gambit, which is another one from a little bit earlier, which I guess it depends on whether or not you consider chess to be a sport, whether it's sports adjacent. We'll take it. Uh, but, you know, these are I think you're seeing seeing the sports movies and series move into a little bit different realm where it's not just, oh, OK, let's explore what takes place on the field and, and the redemptive qualities of that and these moving moments and these soaring uh, highs and lows that are tied specifically to the sport. And you're kind of moving sport as the backdrop to kind of move the plot along, but what the movies or the series are really about or something else. So lo those are two series, but, but one I, I watched recently that I really liked was uh, One Night in Miami. And uh, that's the film. Uh, it's based on a stage play, and it was uh, directed by uh, Regina King, and it's uh, it takes uh, the the events, uh, fictional events of uh, 1964, after Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay, uh, beat Sonny Liston for the world title, and then afterwards, uh, Malcolm X, um, Jim Brown, uh, Sam Cooke and uh, Muhammad Ali all go back to the hotel room where they think it's going to be a party, but it's really an exploration about what roles each of these men play in the civil rights movement, uh, how receptive they are to it, uh, how they look to others for support, how they feel they have no choice in the roles they play in some aspect, and, and just how their lives are going to unfold and what their role in the movement will be. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. And at this point, uh, let's have Tony Fay, our showrunner, tap back in for the discussion of One Night uh, in Miami. Tony Fay, what did you think? Well, we, well, before we get to the One Night in Miami thing, I, I just want to know, going back to the last dance, I mean, with the, you know, John Wozniak, the the uh, security guard that was featured in, in there, uh, passed away recently, and with Jerry Krause and and uh, Michael Jordan's father before that, is this a pattern? And David, are you worried? <laughs> I'm worried about many things. <laughs> I'm not sure that my direct link to Michael Jordan was that strong as the others you mentioned. But um, yes, you, you did see me as a said, lurking in the background in, in many moments throughout his career. 
So, you know, I watched One Night in Miami last night, and it was it was very well done. And it was what was most engrossing about it was just kind of the, you know, it got to the heart of how athletes and entertainers, um, the choices that they have to make on how they use their platform. And I, I, that was probably the most relevant takeaway I, I, I took from it. I mean, that's what we've been talking about now for the last, you know, last year, really. And, um, you know, you can see the roots of it going all the way back to the early days of the civil rights movement. And I thought that was really well done. It was fascinating. The acting across the board was great. And, um, you know, it just, when you see uh, four larger than life, um, you know, figures like that on screen, it was, it was incredible. David, well, how they don't have a choice. You know, I mean, if you're if you're at that level at that time and you're that revered, you're basically drawn into the conversation, even if you refuse to take part. And and I think, you know, I think Sam Cooke uh, was wrestling with that to to some extent as well. And and they explored that aspect of it. So really, if if you're uh, an iconic man of color at that time or even now, I don't know that you can really separate yourself from the discussion that is taking place uh, in that moment in history. Yeah, the, the scene where Malcolm X puts on the Bob Dylan record and kind of confronts Sam Cooke yeah. with, with the lyrics and and the, the 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 choice he's made in how he's presenting his career was, was especially was especially powerful. And of course, it led to Sam Cooke writing and recording "A Change Is Going to Come," so that so there was there was a payoff to that challenge. For Malcolm X, what would that what would that night look like in 2021? Is it LeBron James and Patrick Mahomes, and who else is in the room, David? And what do you what are they talking about? It'll be good. I like to kick it around and see who else would be in the room. You know, I I was I'm really struck by the fact I'm not sure how different the conversation would be, and that's that's very discouraging in and of itself. I think that. Um, one, I think they would probably be at a resort rather than the Hampton House, which is where they were. Um, you know, I think all, I think whoever four you choose to have in there would have been at a level of success that each of those three, I'm not counting Malcolm X in that because that's a different figure in this time, but each of those three were at a different stage of their career. But, but now I think it would be about, you would have all of these opportunities that uh, Jim Brown and, and Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali were going after and made possible for the next generation of, of athletes and performers. You would have all that now, but then the conversation would be, it would still be very similar, which is, okay, do I really wanna speak on Black Lives Matter? Because what endorsements is it going to cost me and how will it erode my fan base? And what will that mean to what I've built for myself and my family? So I think the conversation's a little bit different, but really the, the core issues are, are still there, which is, I think all four of those men, like I said, a fictionalized account would still be very discouraged by that fact right now. Well, you know, you might think about this too, is that conversation may have, may have happened in the White House when Barack Obama was president. You yeah. know, that's where the setting might have been in a more contemporary time when uh, when he was sitting president and, uh, you know, certainly some of the athletes that came through there. 
Let's bring Monica back in. What are you downloading, uh, Monica? Oh, Celine, I had to go off sports this week. Uh, after our week last week, um, in the great 70, 80-degree weather we had uh, earlier this week, I've downloaded the Margarita Mile app, and uh, I'm really excited for our Tony Fay PR team. I know there's a few of them there that enjoy a few margaritas every now and then. So, uh, I, And I think, Sully, we may have to take the, mar- or the mic drop on the Margarita Mile. So... Uh, some great restaurants out there that highlight margaritas. It, Dallas is home of the frozen margarita. Uh, we just had Margarita Day uh, earlier in the week, maybe last week. So that, inno- that was my download. Innovators again, Dallas. We we invented the frozen margarita. Mariano's 50 years ago, the, the original machine, which was a, a Slurpee machine from a 7-Eleven, now sits in the Smithsonian. <laughs> right. And the Old Town, the Old Town uh, Mariano's. And it's not much of a of a reach, uh, Monica, to connect margaritas with sports. So so I think you're good there. My my download is uh, the Showtime show, Your Honor, and the sports connection is the fact that an autographed Mariano Rivera baseball plays a central role in the plot. So check that out. Uh, thanks to Kurt Menefee, Abner Haynes, Jalen Smith, and our friend David Moore for joining us this week. We'll be back next week with the next episode of Mike Drop with some more great guests. On behalf of Monica Paul and the Dallas Sports Commission, thanks to the Mike Drop production team, Krista Malia, Marcus Carr, and our visionary and showrunner, Tony Fay. Until next time, please remember to subscribe, and thanks for listening. mic drop moments big wins happen here all right dallas don't forget to follow like comment subscribe and share across all of your favorite platforms